This podcast is a member of WGPRN, WildGamesProductions.com. Yes! Behold my Lord Ulrich, the rock, the hard place. Like a wind from Gelderland, he sweeps by, blown far from his homeland in search of glory and honor. We walk in the garden of his turbulence. Whoa, 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 hold on. I refuse to fight. I'm a conscientious objector. A what? You know, a coward. Yeah! Release the princess or prepare for wizardly combat. I want to show you a trick mother showed me when you weren't around. Welcome to Spellburn, a podcast covering the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game and old-school adventuring. It's time to party like it's 1974. This week on Spellburn, we're going to jump straight to the front of the marching order to spotlight Warriors and Dwarves. In the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game, these two fighter classes aren't your typical hack-and-slash one-trick ponies. Between mighty deeds of arms and improved critical hit ranges, there's just the right amount of stalwart style to make these two character classes entertaining to play level after level. With me tonight, as usual, are my two mighty, mighty judges, Judge Job. Hoorah! <laughs> And Judge Jeffrey. Hello, everyone. And I always forget to say, I'm Judge Jim. Bye, Crom. Let's go to the tavern. And the first rule of bartending is this. GBTB. Go beyond the book. Go beyond the book. What do you have? Heineken. death. Tavern talk. So, what did we all do in gaming this week? What are you up to, Judge Joe? I have had a pretty dry spell this week. Um, just just doing some writing on my own and uh, some materials that I worked on for the show, which we will talk about later. Sweet. How about you, Jeffrey? Uh, let's see. My online campaign continues. Like I said, the other week we finished the Blades Against Death. This week found the group with two revived members and a particular magic weapon that was fading quickly, its magic was fading, including the weapon itself. They desired to try to stop that, so uh, they are questing in uh, one of the Purple Duck Games modules, the Falke Idol. They're off because they believe there's something in there that they can use to keep this magic sword from fading away into nothingness. So they're going to try their hand at saving that. That's my DCC RPG game. At home, on the weekends, I've started up a campaign with the kids, but that we're doing a Swords and Wizardry with that one. But we had our third session of that this past weekend, uh, and that's been going pretty well, too. 
So, so they played Blades Against Death to save dead party members, and now what are they going to play? Death Against Blades to save a yes. almost dead sword? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> they, they, this this particular weapon they have acquired. The the person holding it has noticed that it's losing its luster. It's actually becoming lighter. Like it's actually going to fade away into nothingness. And they really want to keep this weapon. Their restored wizard has done some research to try to figure out what they can do to keep this from happening. And they believe they have an idea. And they are off questing, trying to take care of that. That is such a cool concept. I really like that. Yeah, we'll see how we'll see how it plays out. There, we'll we'll see. It's been fun so far. Uh, we play again tomorrow night, so it should be cool. I've just got this visual of the Marty McFly holding his hand up as he's fading thing, except the guy's staring at his sword, going, "No." <laughs> yeah, I mean that's what it was when they heard this. At first, they're just like, "You mean the the magic's fading, right?" And I said, "No, it's like physically getting lighter. The whole entire." object is fading and they're like ooh okay so it's been fun it's been a neat little twist well i i think i know the feeling because as as i've said in earlier podcasts my uh, wizard in our campaign ended up with that ring of sesnarak and at first i'm just like i i'm still kind of in my AD&D world where a ring that has magic missile three times a day and scorching ray once a day okay that's a cool ring i'm first level i could use the extra spells i didn't take it too serious but two games ago when we were at the big bad I managed to uh, roll a natural 20 and uncork like three D12 plus nine scorching rays on this giant orc champion and take him down. And damned if I didn't do it again on Saturday night. We were trying to get to these dwarf mines and it's this long wilderness trek. So we're kind of doing the Lords of the Rings thing where the whole adventure is we're walking and we're walking and we're walking. And then it rains. So we have to try and hole up in this cave and the dwarf smells gold. So we go back in a cave. We fell for it. You know, there's a little crack we could just all barely shimmy through and um there are pros and cons to doing this podcast the pros are my uh judge in my home campaign is listening to the podcast the con is the judge in my home campaign is listening to the podcast <laughs> <laughs> that's great and he pulled some of the stuff we suggested on us we didn't know what the heck we were fighting we go in there and there's this giant creature that he picked Picking bones clean that he described as having skin that was like bark with mushrooms growing out its shoulders. I don't know what it is. Whatever it was, it had a 19 armor class and 8 hit die and almost took the party out. We're like mixed level 1s and level 0s, and he started taking us down. He was getting two swipes around and taking out two level 0s every swing. Did you guys run? Uh, we didn't have what chance to run You know, oh. the first round. So I'm like, okay, it's showtime, Scorching Ray, and I rolled another 20, and all but took him down, lit, same thing, lit him on fire, and then we got him. And uh, it would have been like the, the end of the story, except we stuck around too long trying to find the gold. And here come two more of them. I mean, it was almost a party wipe. Then here comes two more. So I'm like, okay, we have to run for it now. So we, we tear off, but the things had bigger move. And it was like the two more that came out, one looked like a wolf, giant wolf, and one looked like a giant spider with the bark skin and the mushrooms. So we were totally creeped out. We almost didn't make it out of there. We we were trying to squeeze through, and they nailed a couple of our guys in the back, and one of them was a first level. So I had to do what I was forsworn not to do, and I spellburned my wizard for 10 points so we could run back and grab the dead body. And then we get out of the whole thing. We're outside smoking later, and uh, Judge Marcos is like, uh, so do you guys even know what you fought? And I'm, I'm like, I have no idea. Big barky. We thought maybe some underground kind of ent creatures or something like that he goes they were just trolls i did exactly what you said on the show i just changed the way they looked <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it went very 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 well at least from the judge's side of the screen 
Well, we, we pulled through it, but uh, I've got about a halfway gimped wizard at first level already. <laughs> yeah, that can take a while to get back sometimes. Yeah, you need to go on a little vacation. <laughs> We're in the middle of nowhere. There's no end to go hole up in. Okay, well, let's go to summon some emails. You've got mail. Message for you, sir. Summon email. And welcome to the all-email episode of Spellburn, where we're going to talk a little bit about Warriors and Dwarves if we have time. And okay, we've got lots of response on emails and forum posts. Yeah, it's like kind of overwhelming almost. I think that was my passive-aggressive way of saying, thanks for writing. <laughs> <laughs> Though we love you writing. Keep writing. Yep, definitely keep writing. It, it's good to wake up to emails in our mailbox and see what's going on. Yeah, we're getting like awesome amount of emails. You want to round-robin these or... Yeah, let's do it. I'll jump in for the first one. Our old friend DM Kojo writes, Greetings, burners of spells. Excellent job describing the use of wizard magic in episode four, where you clarified some things that I had questions about. One of the aspects of DCC that drew me in was the character funnel. I feel it is the direct opposite of what character creation is about in most modern games. I do have a few questions, though. My gaming group runs from four to nine players most sessions. If I ran a character funnel adventure for my group and most of them showed up, there could be upwards of 30 characters running around. As a judge, how do you manage that many? Also, most of my players prefer to run one character when we play other games, so how do you handle those players who may balk at the idea of running three or four characters at once? Thanks and keep up the good work. Right, you want to jump in there, Jim? Uh, well, sure. I mean, if you have a player who is uncomfortable running three or four characters, just kill two or three of them real quick. Problem solved. <laughs> No, I mean, there's lots of things uh, you can do, uh, DM Kojo. That size group you described is exactly the size group we had when we went through the character funnel. And uh, the rules suggest index cards for level zeros. And you just have each player stack his index cards in front of him in the little mini marching order his characters are. So as you roll around the table randomly to see, say, a monster's going to hit, you just decide which player. And then whoever that guy's got in the front of his level zeros, that's the guy that gets it. That's one thing you can do. Along the same lines, I think we mentioned this on the Character Funnel episode, you should be rolling initiative once per player, not per character. Right. And that really speeds things up. Yeah, that definitely helps. That's a good one, too. And uh, some of it, I mean, I, I, Tim Kojo and I must be exactly the same, I don't know how you want to describe it, mindset, because uh, I've only ever myself run uh, D&D and Gamma World, and four or five players is my comfort zone threshold, but our table is uh, last Saturday there were 13 of us at the table and uh, Marcos handled it just fine. What level? Level zero? Uh, mixed first and zero. Oh wow. So I mean I, I, I couldn't count up how many characters that was. There weren't as many at the end of the adventure as there were at the beginning. And as far as characters, players running more than one character I came from sort of that. I was, I've never been a big fan of running more than one character I, I have our time focusing but with the zero levels they're just so easy and at that point it, there's not a whole lot of mechanics so it's not like you have spells to worry about special abilities it's you know you've got your d20 and your damage for the most part so there's not a lot to manage but if that's still have a player that you know i just don't even want to manage that then I, I would say go ahead and give them two or three and they can just focus on one or two if they want and then that way they sort of carry their stable around with them and, and they don't necessarily have to take a turn for each one of their characters as they go through I think that would probably work out well for a player that just really is balking at running more than one or two characters at a time. And after the character funnel, the player is free to do play whichever one he wants and leave the other ones in town. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, once you get, I mean, because in my online game, I've got some that don't mind playing two. So if they had two funnel survivors, they would go ahead and play them both. And they did just great with it. They handled it fine. It didn't slow the game down at all, and they're comfortable. And I've got other players that would just as soon only run their one character. And so they'd leave the one that survived or, you know, one of their survivors back in the city uh, taking care of business, and then they just travel out with one. So we're able to match sort of both play styles in our game. And, of course, you can always donate one of your extras to the less tactical, less uh, skilled die roller player who lost all of his. You mean the Pathfinder player? <laughs> no, I didn't say that. Yeah, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I mean, it, uh, just a bad fit of bad dice rolling will wipe you out in the funnel. You got to watch. I mean, anything can happen. Oh, the first funnel I played, uh, it was online, and it was sailors, of course. And I was going through this one spot, and one particular obstacle took two of mine out, and the very first set of dice rolled that game just. Boom, gone, two. It was like, okay, down to one. <laughs> so it was pretty it was pretty funny. <laughs> Time to go to the back of the marching order now, please. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's like that flaming statue right at the beginning of Portal Under the Stars. Yes. All right. Well, thanks, DM Kojo, our faithful follower and uh, emailer. Jeffrey, you want to get the next one? Yep, I'll get this one. This one is from Tim Callahan. And he writes, Episode 5 was the best one yet, guys. You conquered the Callahan creature challenge with ease. Here's more of a philosophical question for you. Do you think the DCC experience is fundamentally tied to the rules themselves or to the way adventures are written for the system? In other words, would it still feel like DCC if the same rules were used, but the week's gameplay were more of a cerebral, low-adventure mystery scenario instead of a weird, crazy, multi-level dungeon delve? And on the other side of that is, would it feel like DCC if you ran, say, Sailors of the Starless Sea using AD&D rules instead? How much of DCC is in DCC, and how much is in its actual implementation? What a very interesting question. I, I, have, I have a solid opinion on this, but I'm going to save it. What do you think, Job? I think DCC really would still have that flavor with the example of Sailors on the Starless Sea. I, the Beastmen, uh, you would still roll on the random table for their appearance, you know, regardless of what uh, whether you're using AD&D rules or, or DCC. And I think that this the just the weird flavor would come through, and and um, especially the unknown. You you don't know what's going to come at you. And I tend to agree with that. If I were to run like say sailors with you know swords and wizardry rule set, I think the weirdness is still definitely going to bleed through. Just for the same reason as Job said, you've got the crazy creatures. Uh, you, you know, you've got the ending part, which is still going to be every bit as crazy, regardless of what r- rule system you run it under. So, I think certainly going from adventure to a different rule set, the DCC feel will certainly bleed through in that situation. Okay, I think that. As nearly as is possible, the rules have been written, or the rules are integral to the flavor and the feel of it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting when Michael Curtis was on the show and one of us asked him, um, could you run Stone, a DCC campaign through Stonehill Dungeon? And he immediately said, no, that just wouldn't be an appropriate fit. I mean, given the Dave Arneson caveat that it's all about the judge and how you run the game and the rule set doesn't really matter, you know, that that aside, because any of us could pick up an adventure and, and make it Cthulian or Gonzo or very earnest and uh, cerebral, you know. Uh, it's all about solving puzzles in town adventure. Uh, but there are DCC adventures that are like that, and they're still wild and wacky and crazy stuff happens. So I think that I, I think the answer is you could run Sailor of the Starless Seas with, eight, with D&D rules, and you would still have a weird adventure. But if you tried it the other way around, 
you're just going to be playing DCC. You're going to be playing DCC fine. I mean, if you converted a, an old school module to DCC and did everything that the rules suggest, you'd have a DCC game. Yeah, it all depends on the, the judge, really, anyway. Well, as, as a real-life example, uh, the uh, DM and the other campaign I play in, Angry Monk, uh, is listening to the podcast, and he's been putting he's been pumping some some weird fantasy into his basic D&D game. I, th- I definitely think you can bring the weirdness into the different systems, and it's gonna, uh, the judge certainly has a, a huge role with it uh, from that regards. Okay, well, I'll get the next email. It's from... Um, and before I try this, I just want to make a blanket apology for anybody's name I mispronounce because some, I have mild dyslexia, and sometimes I know how to pronounce somebody's name, and I will still pronounce it incorrectly because it just comes out my mouth that way. But I'm going to give this a swing. Uh, Robert Tengelin writes. Does that sound right to you guys? That, that's how I would say it, too. Rob says, <laughs> hey, guys, I've been listening to the podcast over the past few days, and you're doing a great job. Well, thanks, Rob. I've been judging DCC for a few months now and am in love with the system. I wanted to ask if you would talk about Mighty Deeds, how players can best use Deeds to be effective and awesome in combat, and how the judge could encourage Deeds both when setting up encounters and at the table. Thanks, and keep up the good work, Rob. Well, John B. says your wish has been granted. That's what the show's going to be about. Yep, definitely keep listening because we'll definitely cover that later on in the show. It's like uh, you made your... Uh, predict the future role there, Joe. <laughs> okay, well, um, I guess we'll dive into the next question here. And I guess the really long one here. So um, I think maybe I'm just going to have to paraphrase a bit of the beginning and then we'll dive into the question. And uh, this email uh, reaches us from Surrender Monkey. And uh, he basically says that he, he learns about our show from Saber Die. He's uh, enjoying it. He's really on the fence about whether he, he wants to actually dive into DCCRPG. Um, but uh, he definitely is giving it a serious look, and he wants to integrate some of the, the themes into his white box game. Kind of what we were talking about two emails ago. Yeah. So, And he closes with, uh, I think you guys are probably providing a welcome and stimulating breath of fresh air to the OSR podcast scene. Keep up the good work. Best Surrender Monkey. P.S. I wonder if I might prompt you guys to comment on the portability of DCC Adventures to other old school games. I am assuming that it would be more challenging than converting adventures among the various clone games, but how much so? Given that such distinguished adventure writers as Harley Stroh and Michael Curtis seem to be devoting so much effort to the DCC product line, I'm supposing it might be worth the trouble. All right, you want to uh, dive in there, Jeff? Yeah, I think that you could port a DCC adventure to an older school game without too much difficulty. As long as you're willing to, there's a lot of craziness in DCC games and, and modules and stuff. And as long as you're willing to hand wave that that NPC might be able to do something cool and weird that's not backed by rules, which really doesn't go much against the OSR movement, anyways, I think you could take a DCC adventure and run it with a, a different rule set fairly easily, in my opinion. I'm not not much fuss in us, but I would like double the hit die of most of the encounter creatures. Like if a first level AD&D party was going through Sailors of Starless Seas, you'd want to up those beastmen a little bit. Yeah, I could see doing some tweaks like that. Just, you know, oh, give them max hit points or, you know, hit dice and a half or something like that to help boost them up. I could see that. But nothing more than you would do. I mean, say if it was a, a stable campaign, but you had four players show up instead of eight, you would want to make some adjustments probably. Yeah, I agree. Similar adjustments. 
Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't say it would be challenging. Uh, you know, it would be it would take you uh, maybe a, a tiny bit longer than converting from a clone, since those rule systems are already so close to what you're you're going to. But um, I, I think it's pretty easy. Okay, well, thanks, Surrender Monkey. And next up, we've got GM Joe writing us saying, uh, "Just found your podcast, loved it. Can't wait to be a part of this." So it looks like we've got another DCC fan here in uh, GM Joe. So. Uh, it's good having you, Joe. Go, Joe! Because loving the system is part of the battle, right? Oh, GM yeah. Joe! There you go. All right, I'll get the next email. Uh, it's from Mitchell Hudson, and Mitchell says, Hi, love your podcast. My band does some D&D-themed songs, including Slaying Orcs and Displacer Beast. If you're ever looking for more music, we'd be honored to appear on your podcast. I have not heard of these guys. Do you guys know them? I have not heard their stuff yet. I didn't know um, I didn't know Glitter Wizard till Jeff uh, Job hit me to him though. Yeah, I'll send you a link. Uh, they're pretty good, and I would encourage anyone out there if if you guys want to uh, if you're a musician and you want to contribute music, we'd we'd really love to hear it. We'll see what we can use, and uh, you know, of course, we'll always give you guys credit. There's some really creative people out there. I'm always shocked um, how many artists, musicians, and um, are, are attracted to DCC RPG. So yes, absolutely. We we won't just credit you. We'll post links on the website to your site and things like that too yep definitely moving on to forum posts i'll I'll jump in here okay so from the osr gaming forums we had a post from kuno no oni i would like to understand the history of dcc you guys always say dcc number 67 sailors under the starless sea is the standard what about the other 66 adventures when did dcc start I've never heard of it, so it might be it must be a newer game with an old school feel. Is there a reason you don't talk about the other sixty six adventures? I only know of Goodman Games because of the movie The Gamer's Darkness Rising. The module at the end of the movie was supposed to be from Goodman Games. I guess what I'm asking is for history and lore. Well, that's interesting because there actually is a little history and lore to it because uh, Joe Goodman at some point made the branding decision to call to name this game after what had just been a series of modules for D and D, right? Uh, Goodman Games line, I guess, started in like 3.0 era, and they went through 3.5, 4.0 edition of D&D, and then uh, they came out with their, their own system. I guess maybe they're just trying to cash in on the, the popularity of the Dungeon Crawl Classics name. But I always thought maybe that would confuse newer people, so it sounds like here's one of those people that's confused. I didn't notice that there was a Goodman Games module in, in uh, Darkness Rising. I, I need to watch that again and, and see what it, which one it is. There was. They actually released a paper copy of it, at, I think, at Gen Con one year, and I actually had it. It was like one of the dot .5 modules or something like that, I think. I can't remember. It, it was a, But, yeah, there was a module that went with. You could actually buy the module, too, if I recall correctly. Well, so just to answer the listener's question clearly, the correct answer is, once upon a time, Goodman Games did a line of adventure modules, primarily for D&D, different editions as, as time passed, called Dungeon Crawl Classics, and that was just a line of adventure modules until number 67 when it switched over to modules for the new game also called dungeon crawl classics and from what i understand uh goodman games not are not necessarily going to only do dcc rpg adventures in the future there's you know other editions of games that they 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 might support you know future editions of D, for example and uh it's it's worth mentioning that those uh old dungeon crawl classics modules that were for D D do embody a lot of the what became the Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG aesthetic. 
because those are some kick-ass modules. They are. They're oh, good yeah. modules, and it, I've run some in. Well, I've run one in underneath Dungeon Crawl Classic Rules that was originally for D and D three five, and it went pretty well because it was easy to get the weird in it, and, and so that went pretty well. And it's also some of those early modules also had some of the funky dice make debuts in them as well. You can sort of see hints at people using you know D fives and things like that in the module. It's sort of cool. I actually got interested in Goodman games after uh, I started playing 4.0 because um, I was out of the game for a while. And uh, their their 4.0 adventures uh, for D&D were, were really good. Uh, I was really never a fan of any of the Wizards of the Coast uh, modules that they put out. But yeah, Goodman games is really uh, kicking butt. And um, there's also a lot of history that you can get through those. I guess Default World, which is Aerith, and, and the big city, which is Punjar. Most of the settings kind of stripped out of DCCRPG. There, there is a whole, whole thing behind it. Um, there's, uh, there's a gazetteer. It's like the white boxed um, uh, Castle White Rock. I, I think that has a lot of this information in it about the campaign world behind Dungeon Crawl Classics. And uh, Kuno no Oni, we can also uh, table some of these questions and re-ask them uh, next episode when we're going to have a very special guest. And I don't want to spoil the surprise for next episode, but you'll hardly know who was here. <laughs> that was terrible sorry <laughs> okay one more forum post okay I, I can take this one this one was by thrash librarian and he wrote on the forums another great episode the show has got me all geared up to play dcc to play and to play dcc again i've been picking up the stuff but only managed to run it once at home with some friends and played twice with michael curtis and doug kovacs at GaryCon. I have a question related to the question from the mail section regarding replacing zero-level characters. What do you do when someone loses a higher-level character during an adventure? In our regular BX game, which is Wicked Deadly, we just bring in new characters at first level and try to keep them out of the more dangerous combat until they have some time to level up. First-level Thief can usually level after a session or two if he's hanging out with some fourth- and fifth-level dudes, assuming he doesn't get blown up. When I was playing 3rd edition, I think we'd usually just have them roll up a character a level lower than the previous character, sort of mimicking the resurrection spell. What do you do in DCC? Have them start with some zero levels and hope they get lucky? Or have them generate a character to level the rest of the party? Or something else? Yes. <laughs> what do you guys do? You know, I've experimented a bunch with uh, several different options. Uh, early on, when the characters were just first level, I tended to have them bring it. When my when the main group was at first, I'd have them bring on zero levels. The zero levels would go adventuring out with the first levels, and that worked pretty well. That's exactly what's going on in my home campaign right now. Yeah, and I think that works well there. Where I started running trouble with that is that we started to break. Even at third is where I started to see some trouble in that if I brought zeros in, they were just dead fast, really fast. So I started experimenting with different ways. Sometimes generate four zero levels, choose the one they wanted to level to like one level below, and we'd try that. And that worked okay from the mechanics and things like that, but they seemed to lack attachment to that character because they hadn't really played it much. Mm -hmm. so the most recent thing I've tried is we actually took a short break from our main character line, and I ran another funnel adventure. And I called it my cutscene funnel, where we ran the whole group, all new zero levels, and they were people that actually had idolized the main party. They actually had all hung out in the same tavern, so they were like, we need to go and get the attention of these guys. So I ran a whole new funnel, and at the end of that funnel, now these people had more characters, and they had some attachment to them, because they'd actually played through the funnel with them. And then I let them level those guys up to like one level below the main character group. So that's sort of what we're playing with now. I think it's worked out okay, but it's still a little early yet to tell for sure. I think that's pure genius. 
I, I read that blog post over at the Iron Tavern, and and that was pretty pretty interesting. I like that. Uh, the other thing too about that is uh, there's a rule in DCC RPG called um, recovering the body. So if you die and everyone runs off and lives, there's actually a chance that the character that was killed in combat is could still be alive. So basically, what happens is you go back to the body. When you flip it over, that character will roll a luck check, and if they succeed, they're they actually weren't killed at all. They were knocked unconscious, so they were stunned or something like that. They come back with a, a single hit point, and they have some permanent ability loss. So you you know if you die, you might actually be able to recover that character if it's not a total party wipe. Yeah, and with that, I, I have noticed once you hit like first level, the characters are a little harder to kill because of either you know the bleeding out, you can get them then, or you know if you have to recover the body, you, you know character attrition has slowed down a bit now that we've hit numerical levels. I thought the same thing until we ran into a cave full of trolls. <laughs> yeah, I, and I've had times where the dice went went hot for me and cold for them, and it, it suddenly what was going to be what I never would have thought to be a hard encounter like was darn near a TPK before they finally started spell burning and pulling your bacon out of the fire there. That's a good mechanic, but you don't want to do it too many times to the same character because there's a, a guy in our group whose cleric has died and been rolled and come back so many times that his abilities, which weren't great to begin with, are pretty gimped up now. He's kind of trying to kill the guy now. Yeah, I had one of those. I had a dwarf that just kept bleeding out, and uh, you know, I was like, man, this stamina damage is adding up. And you know, it was going to turn him into pretty much a worthless character, so there is certainly a fine line to how many times you can pull that off i've noticed in some of the newer newer adventures from gcc they're uh they're trying to add permanent ability gains realizing that you know people lose abilities during the game there's really no rule to recover that you know lost ability i i earned my first uh luck point this last game and i'm like woohoo nice how did you get it i spell burned down 10 <laughs> and saved the party <laughs> <laughs> nice so i didn't quite make up for it but it was just i'm just like hey i earned a luck point i'm usually blowing them like they're you know drunk sailor trade 10 for one yeah that's not too bad okay well that's gonna wrap it up for emails it's great that we're getting all this response if you'd like to email us you can contact us at theband at spellburn.com or at our forums on osrgaming.org. Or if you know any of us in real life, just come knock on our front door. No, don't do that. Uh-oh. <laughs> so let's go to Mighty Deeds. Wait a second. I have an idea. That's plenty for the both of us. I move for no man. <laughs> And here we are in Mighty Deeds, the section of the show where whatever we're talking about, we examine from a player point of view. And this evening, we're going to talk about the mechanic that the section of the show was named after, Mighty Deeds of Arms, which naturally means we're going to talk about the warrior class and dwarves. Okay, so I'll kick it off here. Probably most people new to the system would want to know, you know, what's different about the warrior class in DCC RPG. The fighters tend to be, uh, in other fantasy role-playing games, you know, tend to be the guy that just stands up in the front and swings a sword, and there's not much to it. In DCC, it's really uh, spent a lot of time coming up with mechanics to turn that on its head and, and make the warrior and dwarf class, because they're, they're pretty similar, to, to stay fun for a long time. Probably the funnest thing about being a warrior is using what's called Mighty Deeds of Arms. And what those are are um, special combat maneuvers that you do in, in the game. So let's see. Here's actual uh, the quote from the book. 
A Mighty Deed of Arms is a dramatic combat maneuver within the scope of the current combat. In other games where you might, you know, disarm a character or, um, let's see, you know, uh, Trip grapple. Sunder oh, their yeah, I'm weapon. sorry. Yeah, yeah, there we go. There, there would be some separate mechanics for that, and, and all those fall under the purview of uh, Mighty Deeds of Arms in DCC RPG. Well, i got to stop and worship at the altar of the Dark Master uh, again. I feel like I say the same thing over and over again, but the genius of what Joe Goodman did, I mean, it was just a major brainstorm because – Fighters in old school games are traditionally, like you said, just the boring guy who stands in front and swings a sword. And then as uh, D&D went through its different editions, the answer to that was, well, let's beef the fighters up. That Actually, that tension goes all the way back to Gygax and Arneson in the first set of rules. But the way, like in D&D 3rd edition and 3.5 and 4E, was just to tack on more and more skills and weapon proficiencies and all this complicated bookkeeping to try and uh, make the fighters fun to play. Joe comes through and says, I'll give you all of that, except I'll give you one name and one mechanic. All your skills belong to Mighty Deeds. And it's brilliantly wrapped up in, in uh, you know, narrative, not, not mechanics. I mean, there's mechanics, but it really, there's like a, you know, unified, you know, story and mechanical basis behind it. Our group is relatively new. I mean, we've been playing for four or five months. It's uh, one of the most underutilized aspects of any of the character classes in our group. Do you guys find that? I, I yeah, I find it uh, the people forget to use their mighty deed or forget to call, you know, really make use of it. I mean, they roll the d die and they take the hit and damage from it, but sometimes I you know, they need a little spurring to, "Hey, you've got that. Do you want to try something cool?" It, so it takes a little bit to get out of them. It, it's sort of a shift to, to to it a bit. But I I love the mechanic and I love the the idea of how it wraps everything all up into the the one mechanic. Yeah, it's like players are kind of shell shocked from other games where like their warrior can can't do anything but swing their sword. It, exactly, they're in the habit of I swing my sword. Whereas now it's like, well, I swing my sword and I'm going to try to you know knock his leg out from under him, or I'm going to try to you know head him about the head somewhere and try to blind him or something like that. There's just so many, and, and those are just the easy ones. There's so many options you can, you na- if you can think of it, you can try it. <laughs> I'm going to leap at the Medusa and bite its eyes out of its skull so it can't uh, blind us. Uh, perfect. So we well, should probably talk a little bit about the Mighty Deed, what the mechanic is. Yeah, the actual mechanic itself. Okay, I'm in uh, a different game and all I'm doing is rolling an attack die. So uh, basically, how Mighty Deeds work in the game is um, you have a special die called a deed die. And for warriors and dwarfs, when you make an attack roll, at first level, you're going to start out with a d20 as your action die. When you roll that d20, you're going to also roll your, your deed die. At first level, your deed die is uh, 1d3. Before you make that attack, you, you declare, I'm doing a Mighty Deed, and this is you know the thing I'm trying to do with that deed. You roll your d20, you roll your d die, your d3. Anytime your d die comes up a three or higher, so obviously it's a little bit harder at first level, you add your, your d20 roll and your d3 together. If that uh, is sufficient to you know beat the ar- or equal or beat the armor class, uh, your attack succeeds and you do whatever your, your deed comes up as. So there's some sample deeds listed in the book. There's different tables of blinding attacks, disarming attacks, pushback attacks, trips and throws, rallying maneuvers, defensive maneuvers, and precision shots. Basically, and, anything you ever saw Arnold Schwarzenegger do in a movie. <laughs> exactly. Or Errol Flynn, if you're old enough. <laughs> yep, that too. Yeah, I love those old movies. 
as long as you hit and that D die comes up as a three. So, you know, for example, if you if, if you're trying to hit an AC of 14 and, and with your D die, you only came to a 13, even though you rolled a three on that D die, you don't get to do the deed. You have to hit. And so, you know, say we were going to I was going to, you know, try that blinding attack and, and bite out a Medusa's eyes. I would roll uh, say my, my deed was successful. I would roll my D3. And uh, I got a three here. The blinding attack uh, on the table says, opponent's eyes are irritated and stinging, and he, she has difficulty seeing. On its next attack, the opponent suffers a minus two attack penalty. So the the severity of these go up, and um, these are just suggestions of what you can do. You can actually you know design your own deeds, and it's actually encouraged in the book. Yeah, uh, you guys t- want to add anything? I mean, well, yeah. I want to. I want to back the warrior up for a second because the the deed die. We're making it sound like the deed die is only to see if your mighty D succeeds or not. Your deed die for starters is a variable modifier to your attack die. So you're rolling a D twenty plus one to three at first level to hit. Yes. Right. Yep. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You get your three. You're also adding plus three to your hit to see if you actually did hit. So sometimes the stars line up and you critical hit and succeed in your mighty deed. They do, and that's great when that happens. And as you level two, the the uh, the size of your D die increases. So you know, at level two, it's D four, three, it's D five, four, it's D six, and on and on and on. So so yeah, so at fifth level, you roll a D six, and three and above, it, your mighty D succeeds, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So and and you'll see that as the game progresses, uh, my warriors and dwarves hit their deed much much more often than they used to, uh, which is cool. It's good. Sorry, I'm posing as the listener who doesn't understand the game system yet, and plus the guy who never ever plays fighters, which is real. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, we've all played, so we're kind of, you know sometimes we get kind of myopic and and assume knowledge that people might not necessarily have. So, in the deed die, just so it's clear, it sort of takes the place of the base attack bonus. People are probably more familiar with some some of their other D twenty games. So, like a first level, you know, fighter, you have a plus one base attack bonus. So, as we've said, you don't get the plus one, but you get the D three, which then, when you roll, counts for your modifier to attack and damage as well. So, one other unique thing about the fighter is um, basically how they're different from the other classes in the game is they have an improved critical threat range. Starting at level one, you you crit on a 19 or 20. Though a natural 20 is for an auto hit, you don't necessarily get auto hit on 19 if for some reason um, the AC is really high or something. Um, A 19 is an auto hit, but it is a crit if you do hit. We were lamenting last episode that we never find anything wrong with this game or any of the products we reviewed. There's actually a typo in the warrior section of the main rule book. And see see if I'm right. In the warrior section under critical hits, it says, In combat, a warrior is most likely to score a critical hit and tends to get the most destructive effects when he does so. Um, I don't believe the math on that computes because, as you just said, at first level, your critical range is uh, 19 to 20, right? Right. Yes. So, you, so you've got a 20% or a 10% chance on average of hitting a critical hit. And when you do that, you uh, first level warrior goes to critical hit table three. If you're playing a halfling and you decide to dual wield weapons, the benefit of that for halflings is uh, you can use two of the same weapons and get two attacks even at first level, except that you're rolling on a d16 instead of a d20. Well, 16, 
you hit 6.25% of the time, so two rolls gives you a 12.5% chance of critting. You're not going to hit as often as a warrior does, but you're going to crit 2.5% per combat round at first level more. And when a halfling crits at first level, he goes to the same crit table as the warrior's. Yeah, the, the the only I guess the balancing <laughs> was that portion too, of that was that too crunchy. <laughs> I, I was surprised about that from the art guy. Yes. <laughs> no, I've multiple people have said that to me because, like I said, I run a lot of uh, one shots and and con games, and multiple people, you know, their first exposure, like, oh well, you know, they start stroking their beard. Uh, there is uh, a little bit of a balance there, just because uh, the halfling has a static bonus. They don't have a deed die that I don't think goes as high. They they can't get a plus three bonus at first level, and also they're rolling with a d sixteen. And depending on the armor class, they they might have a really uh, slim chance of actually hitting, no matter what they roll. Well, I, I knew it was a nitpick, but I, I know we were scraping the barrel for something to critique <laughs> about this game. So that's what I that's what I came up with. Yeah, yeah, I just, it's definitely a critique, and I, there's a little there's a little bit of mechanical, um, you know, back and forth there. I guess that I guess my math is still wrong because it that only works without the deed die, with the extra random plus one to plus three, you're still going to hit more crits, right? Well, what do you mean? Well, does a critical hit have to be a natural nineteen or twenty? Yeah, it has to come up on the die. At least that's how I always yeah. play it. It, oh. it has to be a natural 19 or 20, and then only a 20 is a automatic hit. So you still have to add up your your D die, your D, your uh, attack die, and if for for some reason you know 19 plus a three, you know uh, 22 d- doesn't hit the AC, then then you're not going to hit. You would have have to have had rolled that natural 20 to actually hit, because that would be the auto hit. And I'll point out that even though I'm nitpicking that the that crit table three that the first level halfling and warriors and clerics. Uh, and dwarves all share. Warriors are only on that table first and second level. Cler- yeah, clerics I, and halflings are on that table for for life. At third level, the warrior kicks up to the next best table. Yeah, right. And then warrior has a you know when he gets to level five has his own table. Like nobody else gets that one. <laughs> That's right. And that one is kick. But yeah, are we are, are we going to roll some uh, crit table five critical hits? Uh, we're just going to do level one just to make it easy on people. But that'll that'll be coming up soon. Stay tuned, people. I and, just love love how they're written. And also, too, Joe mentioned, you know, there is a section that sort of talks about, you know, if you're going for a blinding attack, there's sort of a chart that sort of gives you a basic idea of, you know, what you would accomplish with, you know, in varying degrees of levels. But also in the warrior section, I mean, there's examples of things like uh, you're hurling flasks of burning oil at a giant toad. The warrior aimed for the toad's open mouth to throw the oil down its gullet. With the premise being, if you hit your deed die, the oil is going to go down, you know, the toad's open mouth. So, even though there are the charts and tables further back in the combat section about these specific, you know, actions, let your players be creative, encourage them to be creative, and when you're in those weird environmental situations or fights or, you know, you've got this flask of oil you want to hurl somewhere... uh, you know, let your player come up with what they want to do and figure out in the deed die what range, you know, they'll be successful on. And, it, it, you know, you can be real creative with it. A player with a warrior saved our bacon in uh, free RPG day because we were in the uh, Imperishable Saucers and got up against that scorpion thing that jumps you. And uh, he mighty deed, he announced his mighty deed was he was going for the stinger and he nailed it. Yeah, and, and that's great. You know, the, the warrior gets to walk away feeling great and uh, turns a tide. And, you know, I think it's a good thing let him be. And sometimes as a judge, it's like, oh, shoot, this encounter, I thought it was going to be, you know, super hard, got neutralized a bit. But 
you know, that's great. That's part of the fun of the game is roll with it and, and, and go for it. If you look into the rules too, there, there's a different, I would say there's different categories of deeds as well. There's w- w- one that you're kind of mentioning there. I don't think they explicitly call it out, but they show it in examples, which I think would be like a situational deed where, where you're, you know, trying to throw that flask of oil into the giant toad's mouth. Um, there's, you know, you just your generic deed. So there's, you know, all the different uh, you know, blinding, disarming, pushback, et cetera, type of generic deeds. The, the rules also mention signature deeds, and those are basically uh, runs you flip over your, your character sheet and kind of work out your own list of, you know, these are my default cool mighty deed actions that I would do and, and come up with your own stuff. And then finally, there's also um, a small section about weapon-specific deeds. So there's some tables of, like, you know, if you have a battle axe, some deeds that, that might go along with that axe. So there's a lot of there's a lot of variety in there. What you can do, I mean, it's really kind of what, what could be more awesome than that. I mean, that's like telling a wizard on the back of your sheet you can make up your own spell. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's great. I mean, it, the mighty deeds are so flexible. It's like a first level warrior. You have all the feats you could ever want at your fingertips. You just have to hit a three or higher on your deed die, and uh, you know you're off to the races. You're only limited by your dice and your imagination. Yeah, and one of the emails uh, the gentleman asked, how do you encourage your players to use Mighty Deeds? Would, do you guys egg your players into it? Or you got good players that are coming up with it on their own? I think it's a combination of both for me. Uh, sometimes the, uh, on a good night, they're coming up with some insano stuff. And, and you know, it's like, yeah, you can do that. Let's, let's, let's let the deed die determine that. And sometimes it's, you know, if, if we've gone several rounds and they've, they've been rolling their deed die, but they haven't called anything, I'll just, you know, remind them, hey, you know, do, you know you're on a deed die. Do you have anything special you want to do? And then they'll think for a second and then we'll get, you know, yeah, I want to knock that giant rat into the one next to it and, you know, knock it over and stuff. Uh, so it, it goes combination. It depends on the energy of the session, I think. And sometimes there's a little bit of egging on and other times they're just coming up with them right and left. How do you guys handle the difference between what qualifies and what doesn't? Like the difference, I, I want to uh, knee sweep this guy and push him out the cliff, as opposed to I want to try and knee sweep this giant dragon and push him out the cliff, which clearly a judge would say, no, no, you can't do that. Right. You know, if you look through the, the different tables of generic deeds, you can kind of get like a, an idea of the power level. You know, three is usually, you know, like a, a, a minus modifier. Just do whatever makes sense. I mean, if it's your big bad and they want to push them off the cliff, let them try the deed. And, and even if they succeed, they can try. Um, there's actually specifically stuff called out in the in the rules in the core rulebook that say the judge has you know can decide well that you know they're going to get some kind of save to that. Okay, your deed to push off the 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 dragon succeeded and you rushed and pushed him. Well, for him you know to avoid that is only like a DC five because he's a dragon and you're you a halfling. And the other thing, too, first, like Job says, definitely read through. I mean, the Mighty Deed section, the combat section, starts on page 88 of the rules. As a judge, definitely read through that because it'll help give you that idea of scale. You know, like Job said, the you know you get a three. Most of them are just a, uh, penalties to attack or something like that. So, you know, as, you, as your players start coming up with their wild and crazy things on their own that don't match. Uh, you know, so in the case of the dragon, I mean, if we were talking higher level, you know, fourth, fifth, something like that. And they pulled it off. Yeah, I'm probably not going to let that big dragon fall off the cliff. But I might say it has to take a turn to catch its balance or flap its wings to, you know, readjust itself. And it either loses an attack or, you know, it, it, it something like that to help 
let it be cool without you know negating the deed because I don't want my big mighty dragon to fall off the cliff. You, you know, something like that. So that's a good pro tip for the judges out there. You guys are talking about too because you could reward player creativity by uh, adjusting the opposing DC role that the monster would make. If the players came up with some complicated mighty deed that involved greasing the path in front of the dragon and then shoving him in some creative way, it, it, you could reward that by. Uh, raising the dc check the creature would have to make to oppose the mighty deed yeah is that exactly. what i'm hearing yeah it, exactly it's, i try not to ever say if they hit their deed i try not to be like oh it didn't have any effect i might modify it and okay it's blind for a couple rounds or you know but yeah definitely try to reward the player creativity within reason don't say no say yes and exactly. oh see that's awesome that's the way to do it Okay, well, yeah, maybe we should also uh, talk about uh, the dwarf class a little bit and what's different about that. They do use mighty deeds, but um, you want to talk on that, uh, Jeffrey? They kind of have one built-in sort of mighty deed. Yeah, the the dwarf class it does get to use mighty deeds as well and has some, you know, um, uh, does well on the criticals and stuff. The biggest thing about the dwarf class the, uh, uh, that I, I like is the shield bash. The dwarf, if it's if he's wielding a shield can also make an attack with his shield. So if he's got a hammer or an axe in one hand, he can attack with that, and then he can make a shield bash and try to bash him with the shield. And for some reason, this just fits with my image of dwarves in close quarters with a shield in one hand and a, you know, a, a, an axe or something in the other. Now their shield bash is done on a d14. So to make the attack roll, I have to do a d14, and it does 1d3 damage when it hits. But that to me, I, I love that about the dwarf. I love the but fact this that is, the shield bash. This is the exact thing I mean when I tell people that uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics has race as class, but they fixed it so that they're all fun to play. I mean, because a first level dwarf gets two attacks around. Exactly, right out of the gate, and gets the mighty, the deed die on it, and they're starting out with a D three two. So, you know, yeah, they're only rolling D fourteen, but if they hit a three on their uh, deed die and get a good shield bash roll you know they're 17 which at first level is going to be pretty good don't forget too they get uh infravision 60 feet i think oh yeah uh, they can they can smell gold and gems within 100 feet yes and uh there's one other thing oh they get uh bonuses to uh different underground skill checks for example like you know evaluating stone masonry or um determining the slope of a dungeon floor i guess Yep. Uh, and and they get their own detect traps without being a thief. Oh, yeah, that's true, too. Well, I, I think only when they're underground, though, right? I would assume so, since it's all involved in the masonry knowledge. But still, not bad. Yeah, no, not, not bad. bad uh, yeah, the dwarves are fun. They're, um, like I said, between getting the mighty deeds helps. Uh, I love the sword and board. That shield bash, to me, just hits the image. And like I said, you can't overlook to smell gold. Once your players that are playing a dwarf realizes they can smell out gold, adventures just take on a whole new meaning. Well, do I smell any gold when they're at the T intersection? You know, I mean, it's it's they're suddenly motivated by uh, by what direction? Where do I smell the most gold at? I want to go that direction. I love players because our, sometimes our group has to be reminded, you know, the halfling, could you, we could use some luck. Hey, warrior, you know, you're good at Mighty Deed. But we never have to remind that dwarf to smell for gold. <laughs> That's funny. My dwarf, he yeah, sometimes re- remembers and sometimes he doesn't. But when he remembers, it's pretty funny. I, I'm reading uh, Paul Anderson's uh, Three Hearts and Three Lions right now. And uh, the dwarf in that uh, named Huggy... It, he actually like smells out things, that, and I, I kind of wonder if that's one of the places that uh, that Joseph Goodman drew inspiration. Well, hey, you guys read that book? 
Well, I have not. And I have not either, so. Yeah, there's one part where they're, he travels along with the main character, Holger, and um, they're trying to find a werewolf, and uh, he sniffs and goes through the town and, and uh, is able to track it back and find out who it is. It's pretty cool. Well, maybe we can uh, invoke patrons successfully enough one day to get Joe on the show, and we'll ask him. Oh, yeah, the questions we could have on that show. I, <laughs> I think that'll happen one day. The special for our special. They posted a link to our show on the front page last week, so uh, you know I think I think they listen. Oh, I should have mentioned that at the front of the show. Yes, uh, Goodman Games posted a link to the Michael Curtis interview right on their homepage. That's so cool. Yeah, it's definitely cool to see that. Go Team Spellburn! I would so much rather do a show about a uh, indie publisher with a great game than you know some gigantic corporation. I don't know. It's just. It appeals to my personal psychology. Yeah, I I'm the stave mindset. Yeah, I think that's why we're all here on this podcast. Is we we like the uh, uh, the small publisher. I don't know, hits the underdog. Head. Yeah. So okay. we've got the dwarf, the warrior, and probably want to touch just. A, I don't know how often we've touched about how crits work, but we probably want to touch on maybe the crit tables just a touch and fumbles a bit, and then we'll do one of the live plays, Joe. Yeah, I want to see. I want to. I want to. I want to hear some crits. Okay. Yeah, let's definitely roll on crit table five here. So why don't you explain it, and then we'll uh, we'll do a roll here. Just okay. So in Dungeon Crawl Classics, um, when a character, and this doesn't just apply to, uh, uh, well, we're gonna since we're gonna roll on crit table five, uh, it does just apply to warriors. I think high level dwarves. But typically, any character that gets a crit rolls a 20 on their dice. In the warrior's case, 19 to 10 to start. Uh, Eventually, they'll get to I think 17 to 20 on the dice is a crit roll. You get to roll on a critical table. It varies on what character class you are. Warriors roll on different ones than clerics and halflings. And you get cool stuff. Sometimes it's more damage. Sometimes it's uh, the the victim goes deaf. Sometimes they fall prone. And on crit table 5, I think it gets even crazier than that. So if you roll a 20, you roll a dice on the crit table and you check the result. In a way, it's uh, the warrior equivalent of the spell check tables and all the wizard spells. Very similar. Very similar. Yeah. That's when you hit your 20, you get to see what cool random thing happens. All right, I'm just going to roll a d20 and read something off of crit table 5 for warriors. And crit table 5, is this is the biggest there is. This is for level 5 plus warriors. This is, you know, this is towards the pinnacle here. So I rolled a 15. Blow Sunder's shield. Inflict 2d12 damage. Uh, I'm sorry, plus 2d12 damage with this strike. The foe has no shield. He must make a fort save DC 20 plus PC level or be knocked unconscious from the pain. And there's some other awesome ones. Number 18, I like. Blow destroys target's face. Face is immediately rendered blind and deaf and is now capable of only wet, gurgling sounds. That's great. <laughs> Strike removes crown of target skull. Foe dies from exposed brain matter matter in 3d three rounds that's good flavor there yeah so i mean you open up a fight as a you know a fifth level warrior and you get that you could end the the fight real quick there this is pretty arnesonian this is like something out of dave arneson's campaign godly attack uh you know inflict that's plus 3d 12 damage but if foe if target dies move up to 10 feet and make another attack on the next foe yeah, there's some great stuff on these tables. Like I said, this is the crit table five, so your first level guy is not going to be doing this, but it tells you what you're going to be moving towards as the game progresses. So in the same vein of, of rolling a crit, uh, when you roll a natural one, you actually roll on a fumble table as well. And in, in uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics, the size of your fumble die is determined by how heavy your armor is. 
So if you're wearing plate mail, you're going to be rolling a D12. And if you're wearing lighter armor, the, the, the die size goes down. The, the funny thing, too, though, is that your fumble rules are modified by your luck score. So if you burn down your luck and your modifier is down to a minus three, on a fumble, it gets inverted and adds three to your roll. So, for example, I'm going to say I'm a, I'm a level one warrior in, in full plate, which how do you afford that? But whatever. And I rolled a seven. So you drop your weapon. You must retrieve it or draw a new one on your next action. Not so, the worst. Not the worst fumble in the world. Yeah, not yeah, the there's, worst. There's some bad ones. I mean, like 14, if you do that bad, like a turtle on its back, you slip and land upside down, flailing about and unable to right yourself. You must fight from a prone position for the re- next round before you can recover your balance and rise. When we play, we tend to get a lot of the weapon is damaged. Uh, it's going to rep- require 10 minutes of work to repair. Get a lot of the your party laughs at you type stuff. And a lot of falling prone is what we get a lot of when we get our fumbles in the games I run. The illustration on the page is hilarious, too. It's like uh, It looks like a, um, a Jim Holloway piece. And there's some kind of Morlock or troll or something. And this guy's got his axe like a, about over his head about to crash it down and the head of the axe falls off back behind him he can't see yeah he he, he thinks he's about to uh, alpha strike the guy with that axe and it's lost its head <laughs> yeah it's great so yeah so that's how Dungeon Crawl classics handles the the critical side of things and the uh the fumble side of things which uh it can have some fun consequences at the table should i wait for the uh mercurial magic section to mention that monsters also get their crit tables yeah, let's cover uh, that one in Mercurial, I think. Yeah, uh, I actually put that down in Dungeon Denizens. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yep. I, I only mentioned it because the, the crits and and fumbles sometimes stack crazily like the spell mechanic will. And uh, in one of our games, in Sailor of the Starless Seas, one of the Beastmen got off some super crit thing and by the time the poor char- the character just didn't get killed, he got his spleen ruptured, his back bone collapsed and tent pegged into the ground a foot. It was, it was, <laughs> I don't know how they rolled that up on the crit table, but I trust the results. It was crazy what happened. So, hey, guys, you gotta, you want to go through like a quick like one round of combat or something kind of give people an example of, of how this plays out at the table? Yeah, sure. All right. So I sent you guys some character sheets. There's a, a warrior and a dwarf. You guys just want to grab one of those? I got them right here in front of me. Yeah, let me grab. And I cast Magic Missile. <laughs> Sorry, wrong character sheet. You ready, Jeffrey? Yes, I have the dwarf ready to go, and our dwarf okay, has I... a hand axe and a shield. All right, I just quickly wrote something to set the stage here. Okay, the stone floor suddenly shifts beneath your feet, sending you tumbling into a frictionless sliding passage. After several panicked minutes, you're pitched headfirst at the base of a ziggurat, topped by an altar lit by flaming braziers. You hear a screeching howl and claws clattering on the stone from behind as an enormous beaked wolf leaps into the firelight. Roll for initiative. And I got a 12 on initiative. Initiative in DCC being a D20 roll. Yes. Good point. Plus your net modifier. Which warriors actually get to uh, add their luck modifier to their net, I believe. Did you just pull the Albert, the changed Albert vulture hound on him? Yes, that is the Vulture Hound. That's awesome. <laughs> so what's your initiative, Jim? Oh, I'm in the same combat? Yeah, yeah, we'll just do it all together. All right. I'm not going to die by myself in here. It's Joe running this thing. Oh, I, typical of me, I rolled a five. Let's see if I got a plus one. Oh, plus, oh so, well, that jacks it up to a seven for the warrior. 
Okay. I, well, I, I rolled. I, rolled I ain't a going six. first. <laughs> I rolled a six, so uh, it's going to be Jeffrey and then um, Jim and then a Vulture Wolf. Okay, I am going to rush in with my hand axe, and I am going to try to knock this leg out from underneath this hound. Okay, so you're going to do a mighty deed here. I'm going to do a mighty deed to try to knock his leg out from under him. Let's see it. Got a 17, but I did not hit my deed. Okay, so you hit. So your hand axe does how much damage? Seven points with the deed. With I, I rolled a two on my deed die, so I did not hit my deed, but I got five on my damage for the hand axe plus my Pretty two. Good question, huh? I think it's a... Uh... Okay, under weapons it says hand axe. D3 yes. plus one melee, uh, damage 1d6 plus deed plus uh, one. Yep, so I got a five on my six, a two on my deed, and then plus one, so I did eight damage. Now I'm going to shield bash. I roll a d16, and I got a five, so I miss. Yeah, we <laughs> I'm not going to cheat, cheat and look up what hit points this thing has. My the turn? Howls in pain. Yeah, you're up. All right, I'm going to go for a sweep with my long sword to try and take off one of its back legs so it can't get anywhere. And my I rolled a natural 20, and my deed die was one. So I crit hit, but I didn't get my mighty deed. Nice. Okay. Well, uh, so at, you're going to roll on crit table three as a, as a first-level warrior. So... Um, Right in your sheet there, you should see what your critical die is. I believe it's a D12. It is a D12. And I rolled 11. Woo! No, I'm sorry, 9. 9. Okay. So, strike to leg splinters, femur, inflict an extra 2D6 damage with the strike, and foe loses 10 feet of movement until healed. An extra 2D6? Yep. Nice. Oh. Okay. So, you want to roll your damage, 2D6, plus your deed, whatever your deed roll was. Uh, uh, a 1. Plus whatever your bonus from strength is, I guess. Damage on the long sword is eight. I don't. I don't actually roll a lot of eight-sided dice in my wizard career. That's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So his total damage is going to be one d eight plus the one from the d die plus one. So that part is a big eight points of damage. And then the crit damage is another 12 boxcars. <laughs> nice. What uh, weapon do you have? A uh, longsword. Dude, the longsword just comes down across his neck. It splits his gullet. It tears down through his stomach. His rib cage opens up and mutant vulture wolf babies fly out and mule on the floor <laughs> around you. And they mule. 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 So anyway, basically, yeah, you guys really kicked its butt there, but. Th- that's the just so you know if you're ever at the gaming table with dm glenn from save or die don't ever pull the baby monster thing on him because he'll go berserk i think i remember the goblin story right yeah right right I, however i know they're evil and i have no trouble going over there and stomping every baby dead <laughs> all right and you've succeeded in whatever you're trying to do here retrieve the ark of the covenant so that that's it one round and we took him down you actually did <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, AC 14 and uh, 15 hit points, but you guys just blew through that. I gotta admit, that felt good. Maybe I need to start <laughs> playing a fighter. They're fun. I enjoy a good fighter. So, But that's sort of an example of, you know, the roles, us trying to declare our deed, even though we didn't happen to hit one of our deeds. Uh, we both tried to declare one at knocking the legs out, and then got the crit off a, a gems warrior there, so we got to see how the crit table worked. 
I, I want to cover one more thing that's actually not in the show notes because what's sauce for the monster is sauce for the players too. The thing we talked about the last uh, last couple episodes about how you could take the same stat block and just change the flavor text around it. This came up in the last game. We had a, uh, a bunch of the crawl magazines out and uh, – Judge uh, Marcos was allowing some of the new players entering the game to try some of the uh, alternative classes that are in there, the ranger, the bard, and so on. And a guy said, well, there's not a barbarian. I want my next character to be a barbarian. And I jumped on that. I'm like, you just play a warrior and you change all the flavor text and come up with your own barbarian set of mighty deeds that you do and then just run with this. Yes. So there's no need for all that zillion different classes. Yeah. I mean, how would you handle that at your table? Would you probably the same way? I mean, if someone really wanted to play a barbarian, and I was in a, a longer running campaign, I'd probably come up with something, a couple little mechanical things for the class, possibly for him. But yeah, you definitely just—it would just be a reskinned warrior with a couple tweaks. Yeah, right I on. agree. I can't imagine making too many major tweaks to. Uh, I try not to drift too much, and, and I agree. I wouldn't be too many more than just a couple tweaks here or there, just to give it more flavor than anything else. Right, a guy wants to be a half orc. You know, okay, fine. You're a warrior. Here are the 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 flavor things that be different about that. Um, I don't think we mentioned they get a D12 hit die either. To either yes. dwarves get a D10 and warriors get a D12. That's pretty beefy. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a big advantage. Okay, anything from else from the player side? I think we beat it into the round. Yeah, I think that covers it. <laughs> we we critted that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, you don't need the core book anymore. You can just listen to this podcast a couple times. <laughs> That's right. Okay, well, let's move it over to Mercurial Magic. Great all-seeing eye of Agamotto, you must come to my aid. Doesn't weird stuff happen when spells are messed up? I don't feel anything. So that could have gone better. Mercurial Magic. Okay, so now we'll talk about it from the GM point of view, even though we inevitably have already discussed a couple of those things. Um, like, how do you educate a mighty deed? Yeah, and I think that goes to some of the stuff we did talk about in the player section from the judge side, which is just use the charts and the, the combat section to get a feel for you know varying levels of, you know if you're just hitting a three, what how, how things should roll, and as the deed die gets higher, what kind of effect. So... Uh, like I said, and like, like Job said earlier, I try to default to yes, but, or something like that to, you know, make sure if they're trying to call deeds and they're being creative, you know, try to reward them if they hit it. Well, let's, let's, let's make uh, internet stars of two of your players. What's the just craziest mighty deed that's been pulled at either of your tables that actually worked? And who was the player who did it? I'm trying to think now that you put me on the spot. A lot of mine... Are I mean probably one that I don't know the group is the most fun with and I don't think it's super insane but we were lower levels but uh, I'm trying to remember what they were fighting I think it was oh it's these freaky rats out of a purple duck game adventure there's these freaky like almost boneless rat things that weren't super hard but the person and I think the player's name was Aaron had a warrior that wanted to knock one rat into the other to try to kill another rat so essentially get two with one swing and uh we were slightly lower level and when he was hitting his mighty deeds these things weren't made to be completely you know they weren't the the game changer here or anything like that so you know they had a lot of fun when he hit that deed i you know i'd describe it as he hit this rat and it went flying across and hit this other rat and you know sometimes if he rolled good damage coupled with a good 
D-roll. I'd let him kill two rats with with one swoop with that. Uh, that one sort of sticks out because I just remember the whole table having fun with that, that he was there and thwack a rat and take a second one out just from the first one flying across. Well, let's, that's one more mechanic that we still haven't highlighted of the Mighty Deed. If you a- announce and attempt a Mighty Deed and don't hit your Mighty Deed roll, there's absolutely no penalty. So, for example, I could say, okay, Jeffrey, my warrior jumps on – Stands up in the saddle of my horse and does a triple somersault off the horse, lands on my feet, and takes a swing at the guy. Okay, if I miss the mighty deed, I still get to dismount and take a swing, but I don't I don't screw up and land on my butt unless I roll a fumble, right? Yeah, I'm usually pretty nice on that. I don't give too many penalties for trying something cool. So there's a role-playing opportunity with mighty deeds, too. It definitely. Yeah, I mean, that's baked into the mechanic, I think. Okay, and we've kind of already talked about helping players create Mighty Deeds, but uh, uh, Job, you want to talk about this uh, thing that you've invented that we'll actually post on the website? Because I thought it was damn cool. Uh, sure. So uh, basically, I'm just trying to think, you know, how do we encourage a player from a different system where they're not kind of used to Mighty Deeds to start using them? So um, one of the things I was thinking, and it's actually recommended in the book, uh, was to come up with some play sheets so that people can write their own mighty deeds and we're going to put this up on the site but basically it's a a a mighty deed tracker it's got a a spot for the name at the top a spot for a description and then there's a table with the deed rolls um three four five six seven plus and then some area for you to to write in what your deed does so that's awesome that's like a playbook for warriors you can make your own little playbook yeah, exactly. So, you know, you know, I would suggest, you know, the the new warrior players kind of look through the generic ones to kind of get an idea of the power level. And, and your GM can help you with this. I think it'd be cool, you know, you, you know, you could use all the generic tables and then, you know, my warrior knows flying eagle technique. And then you go, you go through and, and description would be like Crow Man, uh, you know, studied with the, the monks at the Flying Eagle Temple for seven years and learned all these techniques while focusing on his power animal, the eagle. And then you go through and just kind of make these custom um, tables. And you can do as many as you like. I I think for for GMs that if you gave a player that option, it might spur them to to use Mighty Deeds more often and and just think of them more creatively rather than, oh, this is just a table that I have to look up something in. Now you're talking, oh, your crouching tiger is no match for my whooping crane. Maneuver. Right, exactly. <laughs> I think that's good too because sometimes when the player's at the spot, they know they don't want to hold up the section, so they're rolling their d20. They're getting pressured to you're going to come up with a deed, and they didn't quite think of it, so there's like, oh, I don't know. But if you send them home with a sheet or something like that, when they can sort of think about it, you know, not while the pressure's on, that you're more likely to get it. You know, hey, that's cool, and add that flavor to the characters. So I think that's a pretty cool idea. I think it's a really good idea. Are you sure we want to put this on the website? Because I'm smelling Kickstarter. <laughs> I think it'd be cool. I mean, I just like it when players get excited about it. And, um, you know, if you just, if they had a sheet, you know, whenever they did something cool, you'd be like, you know what? Put that on your, your special maneuvers table. I want to see that again. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be a good way to populate it, too. I'm such an easy sell. You guys have almost got me convinced to give up my wizard character and start over with a warrior. They're a lot of fun. Do I've it. had fun with the dwarves I've played. Do it. <laughs> Anything else from the judges' side that we didn't already sort of cover? I think we've covered most of it through the course of the uh, podcast so far. Yeah, I think we've hit about every note that there is to hit for uh, for warriors and, and dwarves. All right, let's move it over to Dungeon Denizens. Come on, boss. 
chop his head off. Right, silly little leader. Jesus Christ! My armor is like tenfold shields. My teeth are like swords. My claws. And in the vein of skipping ahead and not following the show notes, which I have a tendency to do, I was uh, bringing up the monsters have their own crit table earlier in the show. Just as as character classes have have their own uh, crit tables, monsters do as well. So there's different levels. Uh, For humanoids, you get basically the same tables as as the character classes. So there's a, there's a great table on page 385 um, about critical hits. And I've never read these before. Oh my God. Dragons have their own individual crit table. Yeah. Dragons, demons, giants, undead. And then there's just a generic monster crit table as well. By far, I think my favorite is, is the giant crit table. Uh, If you look at the stat blocks for giants, they, um, they, their action die is a D 24. That's that's the one that got the player I was talking about. I I knew exactly what, I knew exactly what you were talking about when you said it. And they crit on 20 through 24. Like here's an example off of crit table G for giants. If you roll a five flattened, the PC is literally flattened into the ground by the sheer force of the blow with multiple broken bones and several shattered ribs. Character takes an additional 1d12 damage and permanently loses one stamina. That's just so awesome. And then number seven is Colossal Head Strike. This attack inflicts plus 2d6 damage and the, per- the PC permanently loses one point of intelligence. In addition, there's a 25% chance the character forgets the last 24 hours of his life. Nice. <laughs> I gotta start using more giants. <laughs> oh yeah, they're vicious. Giants are always good. So... Just like everything else in Dungeon Crawl Classics, the sword swings both ways. Monsters get their own crit tables. I think yeah. players forget that sometimes. What do you mean the monster got a critical hit? Yeah. Well, the, plus the tables are just uh, just so flavorful for the monsters too. It just really reinforces the uh, you know how scary the monsters actually would be if you actually were facing them. Well, let me ask my two fellow judges who actually run games the question then: If uh, monsters get their own crit tables, can a monster fumble? Well, I, you know, I when we were doing research for the show, I was digging through the book over and over, and there's actually nothing in there about it. But I did go to the Goodman Game Forums, and Joe Goodman himself posted that, yes, 1d4 was the intent for uh, the, the fumble die that monsters would roll. I, basically, it's a blanket 1d4 on the, on the fumble table that everyone uses. Yeah, and I let my monsters fumble, too. I've been doing that for the duration. My players love it when they fumble. And obviously, if you're running a game and you get some result on that fumble table that's clearly impossible, like a dragon rolls a fumble and he drops his sword, well, he doesn't have a sword to drop, you just adjust. Yeah, what I did is I actually had a, a game I ran at Origins where there were some natural like weapons involved and I rolled more fumbles that game than ever. And I kept getting the one where your weapon breaks. So I just sort of ruled it as the creature you know swung and hit the wall luckily they're at least in a somewhat enclosed area and if they essentially either you know broke their claw or broke their hand or broke their whatever the natural weapon they were using you know and and did it that way i uh saw a monster fumble in a michael curtis play test and it's for a adventure that's not out yet but since this particular character i'm about to talk about is on the cover painting which is out i can talk about it the robot 
hit one of those kind of fumbles like weapon breaks and some very interesting things happen that's cool yeah and and obviously you know the 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 judge would have to use whatever you know common sense if the if it fumbled and the the monster standing on a pool of oil or something you might want to you know increase the die size a bit or if there's a bunch of banana peels Exactly. Yeah, and again, it just goes to you know if if it's good for the player characters, it's it's good for the monsters. So you know, I've been known to roll higher than a D four on a fumble table if if I feel that it's deserved, and it, and it just adds fun to the game. The players, I enjoy it when the players fumble, and the players enjoy it when my monsters fumble. So it, it's fair. It's cool as long as things swing both ways. I think I told you guys a few weeks ago, there's a higher level wizard that was planning on killing us as soon as we got in the dungeon and got him what he wanted. And we were eyeballing him, cast a spell that tagged to get us in the, the dungeon that uh, tagged about three of us with its side effects. But then he tagged himself and missed his own save and was a pile of bones. That was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean... Uh, I had all kinds of plans going in my head about how I was going to get him later and, and kill him and take his spell book, and then he just dropped, and I got the spell book anyway. Beyond <laughs> fairness, it's just it's just awesome to roll on the on the crit and fumble tables. So any any chance to increase the number of times I roll on one, I'm all for. Yeah, I agree. I don't mind rolling on for the monster's sake, and I don't mind the players getting a roll either. I mean, when the players get a crit, it's fun. I enjoy that. Yeah, so if you're out there listening and you're one of the a group of people that don't believe in critical hit tables and all the, that kind of mechanics, don't buy this game because it's awesome. I'd also like to open this up to our listeners. If you guys had an awesome deed that you pulled off sometime, uh, you know, your best crit or something like that, maybe even your, you know, your worst moment of failure and a fumble, write in to us and we'd love to read a couple of those on the air. Now, Job, I want you to think carefully about what you're doing because you are inviting character stories now. <laughs> well, the, we're we're gonna no, we're just, not gonna I read just, every just, single one. We're gonna read only the cool ones, and we're gonna uh, <laughs> you know, cut them down. For, we'll put them like, in a random table, and we'll roll for it to see who we read. <laughs> oh yeah! No, 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 no! Send send in all your mighty deed stories, and Judge Job will read each and every one on the air. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just playing. That, that would be great because we're kind of like you. You guys mainly run games. I don't play warriors, so we we're kind of groping around for cool mighty deeds. So somebody out there's got some. Yeah, it would definitely be cool to hear some of the like, cool mighty deeds out there. Get some ideas what other people are doing because it'll help other people that want to play. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, I think that's gonna uh, almost wrap it up for the show. We're, I guess we're gonna do uh, patron bond next. Who are you? Your new lord and master. What board is from mortal, my lord? Oh, don't trouble. One thing I can't stand, it's people groveling. Go ahead. Patron Bond. And uh, this is the part of the show where we rate whatever product or uh, adventure we just talked about and award it either a critical hit, hit, a miss, or a fumble. And uh, so far, it's been a very consistent segment of the show. What do we think about warriors and dwarves as character classes in this game? Hold on, let me get my pom poms. <laughs> yeah, as uh, warrior dwarf classes, I think are just critical hits. They're they're great. Um, they both work slightly differently, so just like all the other classes in the game. So there's definitely a different flavor for each one. Critical hit all the way. Yeah, critical hit for me as well. The dwarf just hits the feel of a dwarf to me in there in a fight with his shield and his hammer or axe just, you know, bashing away. Uh, so a nice hit on the, the dwarf, coupled with the skills I normally associate with a dwarf. The, the 
the sword and board is awesome. And then the mighty deeds, you go across both the warriors and the dwarves. I mean, anything that takes hundreds of feats and wraps them down into one single mechanic and lets my imagination come up with what I want to do, that's just empowering to the player. Uh, it's a lot of fun at the table. So, uh, you know, again, sound like a broken record, but critical hit. Yeah, obviously I'm going to go with critical hit, but to the point, I can't really switch out on my home campaign because they need uh, to have me there as a wizard, the way the party's composed. But I'm going to search high and low for the next opportunity, next play test, next to anything I weasel into, I'm going to play a straight-up warrior. What about Marvin the Mage? Can he become Marvin the Muscle? <laughs> no. <laughs> there you go. There's a side comic for you. <laughs> Mar- Mar- I created Marvin when I was 19, but as time goes by, I'm more and more like Marvin in real life, so I wouldn't make a very good warrior. I'm kind of short, kind of slight, and kind of gray now. <laughs> Wizard is much more my personality archetype, but the mechanics we talked about have just, I mean, I don't know. I couldn't help but get enthusiastic about it while we were doing the show. Oh, yeah. There's a lot there. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Well, that'll wrap it up for this episode. Uh, as I alluded to earlier, be sure and tune in uh, next week for the episode where we'll have a very special guest that uh, I don't think we're going to announce. We'll just let it happen and everybody be surprised. So everybody have a great night. Thanks for listening. Yep, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everybody. We really appreciate it. We're looking forward to more of your emails and forum posts. The Spellburn Podcast is a member of WGPRN and is produced in association with WildGamesProductions.com. The Spellburn theme music is provided by the band Glitter Wizard. You can find them at GlitterWizard.BandCamp.com. Polyhedral die rolls and random number generations on tonight's episode were provided by the Game Science Corporation. Remember, if it's not a platonic solid, it's probably a Zachi. You know, for 18 bucks, you could probably flip a whole lot of coins, and you wouldn't have to ink those either. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Spellburn. Spellburn.